I'm going to read the following gospel passage two times today, two different points in the sermon, and I wonder how it will speak to you in those two different points. So first, our New Testament reading from the book of Luke, chapter 7, verse 35, sorry, 25 through 37. Let us listen for the word of the Lord. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer, Do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine upon them. And then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I wonder what you think about when you hear the phrase, the Good Samaritan. Chances are, since you are sitting here in these church pews, you know this phrase comes from the Bible, but you do not have to be a Christian or even a churchgoer to recognize this phrase. In the United States today, a good Samaritan gets used for anything from a nonprofit organization to legislation, such as the Good Samaritan laws in New York City. This parable we heard today is a well-known story, a story we have told many times, and a story on which we have painted many layers of commentary and assumptions. I want to look a little bit more closely at some of the assumptions we might have painted onto this text today. Many of the following insights come from the book Short Stories by Jesus, which is written by Dr. Amy Jill Levine, a professor of New Testament at Vanderbilt Theological Seminary. Dr. Levine, or AJ as her students call her, is also a devout Jew, worshiping with an Orthodox congregation. She is intently interested in reading Jesus as a Jew speaking to a group of Jews in a time when no one could yet fathom the idea that Christianity would be a separate religion. Dr. Levine is also very concerned with pointing out anti-Jewish bias that has gotten layered into a reading of these texts, these New Testament texts, 
sometimes accidentally. So first, she makes a semantic point, and this is actually not about anti-Jewish bias, but maybe about anti-Samaritan bias. She points out that calling this parable the story of the Good Samaritan is already a problematic thing. Denoting a Samaritan who was a person from the region of Samaria as good sets up an unnecessary, unhelpful contrast between this Samaritan and other Samaritans. It would be like saying, oh, that is the story of the good Jew or the good Christian, she points out, or the good American or the good Iraqi. So instead, perhaps we could consider calling this story the good neighbor. Second, she points out that the way the lawyer at the beginning asks his question of what must I do to inherit eternal life, the, way, the word he uses for do is a very set-in-time word. It's a very one-stop word. What must I do now and then be done with? And the way Jesus answers is to ask him to change his whole way of living. Go and do likewise, over and over again. We might sympathize with the lawyer's question, but she wants us to see that what he's really trying to do is get the right answer in order to move on with his day and his life. Another point. This parable follows a traditional folkloric framework. A man starts out on a journey. He runs into trouble. Three people come down the road. The first two people are the ones who are supposed to help him but don't. And the third person comes along, and that person is the key to everything that happens next. Over the years, readers and scholars have come up with many different reasons why the first two people, the Levite and the priest, people who were seen as devout Jews in the society, why they would go by without stopping. I have read learned scholars explaining that Perhaps Jewish rituals and codes of purity and cleanliness in the Torah meant that these two people didn't want to get ritually dirty or become unclean by touching a corpse. Dr. Levine points out that this is a misreading of Jewish law, which can lead to anti-Jewish sentiment. She points out that when the gospel writer Luke wants to make a point about unnecessary laws of purity, he does. But here, there is no mention of the Levite or the priest being worried about being unclean. In fact, Jewish law should have made the Levite and the priest more responsible for helping the man. The law says that they should check to see if he is actually dead, and if he, even if he is a dead body, then they should treat him with the utmost respect. But the two men don't do this. They do the opposite. And if we blame their responses on Jewish codes and purity, we are actually letting the Levite and the priest off the hook. Dr. Levine points out they have quite simply failed here. They have failed to uphold their responsibility. The one who did uphold the responsibility as dictated by Jewish law, shockingly, it is one, the one whom many of Jesus' listeners wouldn't think is following proper Torah at all. It is the Samaritan. So the third point that Dr. Levine makes is how we have made Samaritan mean many different things. But most fundamentally, as I mentioned, it is a person who's from the region of Samaria. This region still exists. I have been there in the West Bank. 
And the history of it is what, hap what happened is this. At one time, Samaria and was united with Judah as the same kingdom. They were all the same, Jewish people. But then they were divided, and the southern kingdom became Judah, and that is where the capital became in Jeru stayed in Jerusalem. And a descendant of David stayed on the throne. The northern kingdom kept, put its capital in Samaria, and they were ruled by a series of charismatic leaders, stories of which are told throughout the scriptures. The Jews in each kingdom started to drift from each other in very real, undeniable ways, and over a, a couple generations, these differences created enmity and escalated sometimes into violence. Animosity ebbed and flowed across the years, and both kingdoms argued over who had the true, correct law and the true temple. Dr. Levine further points out that to those listening to Jesus, the Samaritans were not distant strangers in some far off land. They were familiar neighbors and reviled enemies. In fact, Jesus passes through Samaria several times as he travels and teaches. Just a few verses before this one in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has been cast out of a Samaritan village. So while we have come to use this image of the Samaritan as one who's part of the poor and marginalized in our society, as well as the good helper, Samaritans were actually considered citizens of an opposing nation, often viewed as enemies, even if they lived quite nearby. And in this text, you can see that the idea of the Samaritan as poor is not accurately depicted. Here, in this text, the Samaritan has resources. He has freedom to travel, his own animal. He has oil and wine for wounds and money to spend on an inn. The last point to make in this first reading, over the centuries, we've been taught to think of ourselves as the Samaritan figure, to use this story as a way to reflect on all the good ways to offer care to people. And while this is not bad, this is very good, it also does take away some of the power of the story. People listening in first century Palestine would have related to the one starting the journey. A man starts down the road, and they would be thinking, what if this was me? What would I do? As Dr. Levine says, to hear this parable in all its provocation, take it in a contemporary context. Samaria is still in the West Bank today. In contemporary terms, I am an Israeli Jew on my way from Jerusalem to Jericho, and I am attacked by thieves, beaten, stripped, robbed, left half dead in a ditch, and two people who should stop to help do not. One is a Jewish medic from the Israeli Defense Forces. The second is a member of the Israel-Palestine Mission Network for the Presbyterian Church USA. The person who does stop to help is a Palestinian Muslim whose sympathies lie with Hamas, a political party whose charter talks about the destruction of Israel. The Jew in the ditch has to realize that his life, that my life, is dependent on someone who I think wants to kill me. Can you hear the provocation there? So we're gonna hear this story again, just the parable. I want us to take a deep breath, actually, not rhetorically, 
deep breath. And let us try to forget everything we have heard before about this story. Let us try to listen as if we are hearing this for the first time, as if you are the one who is about to go on a journey, as if you are the traveler who is heading down the road. Here we are on a hillside. We hear arguments going back and forth, and then this Jesus of Nazareth starts to tell a story, and we settle in. The word of the Lord. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him. And when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. And when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. I wonder when the last time was that you went on a journey. I wonder when was the last time you went on a journey, whether forced or chosen, perhaps a physical, emotional, spiritual, even political journey. I wonder when was the last time you went on a journey and somehow, some way, by some malevolent means, you ended up pummeled and wounded in a ditch. I wonder what happened next. I wonder who came down that road towards you. I wonder who came down the road that you expected to help you but didn't. I wonder who came down the road that you expected to ignore or insult or even cheer along your demise, but instead who stopped, who reached out, who shared resources, who offered gentleness, who offered you time, not just a little, but a lot, who offered you trust and a chance to heal, not just a little, but a lot. I wonder who this person would be. You would owe this person a lot, and there would be nothing you could do to repay them. You are weak and broken. You cannot move. You can only receive what this person is pouring out on your behalf. It is hard enough when someone you respect shows you an abundance of mercy. But how much harder would it be if the benefactor is someone you despise and who you can only ever imagine despising you? What if this person is someone 
you think of as vile in many different ways. What if this person is the last person that you want seeing you as weak, vulnerable, raw? We want to picture ourselves as the hero of the story, the one with resources, with money and medicine and mercy just tumbling out of our pockets. We want to believe that we are the ones in charge, ready and able to follow the lessons of this parable, ready like the lawyer to get to work and get justified and get eternal life and check off that salvific to-do list. We want to believe this as Christians, as Americans, as individuals who are going through life trying our best just to look like we've got things under control. But what if we are not the Samaritan in this story, the one who's able to offer help and healing? What if we are the ones on the side of the road in the ditch? What if we are the ones stripped of our privilege, our priorities, and our potential to do anything on our own. As Sam Wells, an Anglican priest and pastor, puts it, we are not the Samaritan. Jesus is the Samaritan. Jesus is the one we despised, rejected, and crucified. Jesus is the one who sets us on our feet again, and binds up our wounds and bears us as his burden when we cannot carry our own loads. Jesus is the one who takes us to a place of greater safety and makes a home for us where we are, we're strangers and then who promises to return. Jesus is the Samaritan. We are the needy ones. We are the traveler by the side of the road we are the ones who need relationship, who long for forgiveness, for reconciliation, for eternal life. And we would be happy to accept these things from the priest or the Levite. These are people who seem like ourselves, people from our own social background. They have security, they have social esteem, they have resources. But the story is telling us that these people cannot help us. They can't give us what we so desperately need. The answer to our problem is ambling down the road towards us. But hold on, this person is an enemy. This person is offensive to us. This is a person we assume is out to get us. This is a person we look down upon. This is a person we've never in our lives eaten a meal with, let alone touched. This is a person who claims to worship the same God, but whose religion we despise and whose race we regard as inferior. Everything in us resists the idea that we could have anything to receive from this person. Sure, if the roles were reversed, maybe we could bring ourselves to see them as, as an object of charity. But we can't bear the idea that we might ourselves Find, that we might find ourselves begging them for our very life. But this is the form Jesus chooses to take when he comes to save us. That ends Sam Wells's quote. 
We want to tell a story where we are the ones who have the right answers and the right resources at the right time in the right place. We want to tell a story in our lives, in our communities, in our country, where we are the self-sufficient workers, the almighty benefactors, the ever-gracious gift-givers. But what if Jesus is telling us something different? What if we are not the Samaritan, but the person on the side of the road? And what if this is true not just about us as individuals, but about us as a community, even as a country? What if we are dependent on peoples, on nations that we would rather pretend just don't exist? Dr. Levine points out that there are rules in ancient Judaism about not mistreating the enemy, but she says love is never mandated. Only Jesus insists on loving the enemy, and he may be the only person in antiquity to have given this instruction. We know it's important to be nice, but Jesus the Christ goes beyond that. Jesus radicalizes it. Jesus makes it about loving your enemy, about loving a member of your enemy nation. To his listeners, then and now, this can seem revolutionary and deeply troubling. Perhaps instead of calling this the story of the Good Samaritan or even the Good Neighbor, it would be even more accurate to call this the story of the good enemy. So perhaps, perhaps what we could do is leave here and start to practice telling different stories. Instead of telling stories the way we usually do, all of us, the ones where we somehow end up as the great heroic mercy givers, perhaps we can instead start to tell stories this way. I went on a journey. You went on a journey. We went on a journey, and we ended up in a ditch. Jesus went on a journey, and he found us, and he reached out to us. He was nothing like what we expected. He was nothing like what we wanted. He was our enemy. And here's what happened next. May it be so. Let us pray. Holy One, we are on a journey of life and faith. We cannot see the end. We do not often know where we are going. But we remember that you meet us. You lead us on. You lead us out of these pews and into the world and show us how to receive love and mercy first so that we might then offer it to others. Show us how to tell the story of our need and of our, your grace and of all of our ongoing acts of discipleship. In your holy name we pray. Amen.